Well, it's a very good point you make, even though it's a weird one. You can still BS if you've been knighted. Oh. But work with me, Kurt, here. The other person I heard was named after was Angela Merkel. Focus is the F word our parents didn't warn us about. That's Cause... hard for me to do, John. I know. I know. I know. I know. This happens to be my go-to karaoke song. Ah! Ah! Good one, Kurt. It's time for Smart Dribble. This is your co-host, <laughs> Kurt Schneider. <laughs> and this is John Ellen Paul. <laughs> Last time you told me I was just putting evil on the end of words to make them rhyme with dribble, so this time I decided not to. Yeah, you, you channeled the bird wing, no pun intended, of the animal kingdom there. So what are we talking about today? All right, Kurt. So there are a ton of songs out there that have a woman's name in the title. And how many times have you heard one of those songs and wondered, what's the story behind that name? Who is she that inspired this song? This episode is the backstory on famous songs with women's names in the title. What do you back think? Story. Love backstories. Love backstories are fun. Yeah. You want me to kick us off? Please do. Let's start with the Beatles, Kurt. The yeah. Beatles wrote a lot of songs with women's names in the title. There was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. There was Lovely Rita, the Meter Maid. There was Michelle, My Bell. But I'm going to go with Eleanor Rigby, Kurt. Eleanor Rigby is a song about loneliness. Where do they all come from, all the lonely people? So here's the backstory, Kurt. Paul McCartney and John Lennon met at a church party in Liverpool in 1957. There was a graveyard attached to this church, and in the church cemetery is a gravestone with the name Eleanor Rigby on it. That seems like asked and answered. However, Paul insists that Eleanor Rigby is a totally fictional, made-up name. In fact, he claims he took the name Eleanor from an actress at the time whose name was Eleanor Braun, and he took the name Rigby from a liquor store he went to in Bristol. He says he just liked the name Eleanor Rigby, but it seems totally weird, Kurt, that things are completely disconnected, especially when you consider that Paul would visit the cemetery frequently as a kid to visit the gravesite of an uncle that he was very close to. So he allows for the possibility that something's subconscious here, but he insists that Eleanor Rigby is a totally fictional name despite the headstone with the name on it. Quite a coincidence, John. I'm going to go with a got it from the graveyard. You're going to doubt Sir Paul McCartney, who's been knighted by the Queen. Yeah. yeah, you can still BS if you've been knighted. Anyway, it does seem like a crazy coincidence. You know what is interesting is you get all excited because there are so many songs, right? Then we, when we talked about doing this episode, there's so many songs with women's name in it. You get all excited. And then you start doing some research or you're listening to people or talking to people and you're like, yeah, I made up the name. It just sounded good. Kind of bothers me that way. It does because these are great songs. They mean so much. They're, you know, all time great songs. And you think that there's this real live person behind it. And then you're like, I just like the way it sounded. So I dug in first and foremost to Brandy by Looking Glass. Of she's course. a fine girl. Yeah, she's a fine girl. What a good wife she will be. It's a great song. Everyone loves it. Apparently, it was like the number one requested song in the D.C. area when it first came on for a year or two years. Why in the D.C. area, Kurt? 
because that's where a DJ first actually played it and said, I like this. And he discovered it, quote unquote, because someone convinced him to read down and go to like the third or fourth song on this album by this pop group called Looking Glass. And the story behind it is that the guy who was the lead guitar player singer for Looking Glass had a girlfriend in high school the name of Randy. And he wrote the song and he put Randy in it. And he said, well, two things. One, Randy could be a boy, right? It's one of those names that could be both. And this is a song of dexterous. No, it's what's the right word? Ambisexualness, ambigenderous. Androgynous, androgynous. So he said it doesn't scream woman. And the song's about a barmaid. And Brandy is a liqueur. So he decided to go with Brandy. And that's how he did it. But interestingly, when I was doing dug into this more, there was a song called Brandy beforehand in England. When it was brought over here to give to someone who I'm not a fan of, but a lot of people like Barry Manilow. Oh, admit it. You're a big fan. You're a closet fan of Barry Manilow. You know what? People think that because I love Neil Diamond. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. I don't like it, though. I have been to the Copacabana, but I do not like Barry Manilow, but I do like Neil Diamond. Anyway. You weren't the one who shot Rico, were you? By the time Barry Manilow got the song, Brandy by Looking Glass was a huge hit. So we had to change this song to Mandy. And that was the song Mandy. That's why that gets that name. Mandy was actually the first number one song of Manilow's career. It was written and performed by a guy named Scott English, which is a great name for a British singer. There's an urban myth that the song is about Manilow's dog. But Scott English basically said he made up that story to get a reporter off the phone quickly. And English did not like the changes that Manilow made. He made changes to more than the name. He changed some of the lyrics. But then the money started pouring in because the song was so popular. And he liked those changes a lot better at that point. Yeah, yeah, no, it works that way, doesn't it? All All right, right, give me another one. I've got one. Now, Kurt, I'm going to have to ask you to pay extra careful attention here. That's hard for me to do, John. I know, but I I want you to focus. Also hard for me to do. Focus is the F word our parents didn't warn us about, Kurt. The story behind Layla, you know, Derek and the Dominoes, Eric Clapton, is a crazy one. Song goes on too long. It's fine for the first, like, 11,000 minutes, but it goes on too long. But anyway, yes. That's not the point of this story, though. No, I know, but I was just opining that the song was on too long. Can you think of the lyrics, Layla, you've got me on my knees, Layla, I'm begging, darling, darling, please, Layla, darling, won't you ease my mind? Yeah. You're welcome, by the way, for me not singing that. Layla. Exactly. So this is a song, like so many are, about unrequited love. Mm. Here's the story. Clapton wrote it when he fell in love with a British model named Patty Boyd. The problem was. Patty Boyd was married at the time to Clapton's very close friend, George Harrison. Of Beatles fame. Of Beatles fame. And Clapton even confessed to his good friend Harrison that he was in love with Harrison's wife. And Boyd was also in love with Clapton. But she refused to leave Harrison, even though their marriage was pretty rocky. And Clapton, when she refused to leave Harrison, went into descended into years of heroin use. About five years after the song and after he had professed and confessed his love, Boyd finally decided to leave George Harrison and marry Clapton. The final straw in their marriage was Harrison was having an affair with Ringo Starr's wife. It's all very confusing. So Boyd finally leaves Clapton. Clapton is married to Boyd, and you'd think there would be a happy ending, but there's not. 
The marriage lasted about eight years. And apparently one of the stresses in their marriage was an infertility issue. And when Patty Boyd found out that Clapton was expecting a child with another woman, that was that. The song, which was written for Patty Boyd by Clapton, was actually inspired by a poem called The Story of Layla and Magnum about a man who went crazy by a love that was out of reach, Layla. Did you follow all that, Kurt? I did. There was a lot of weird stuff going on then in the early 70s in rock and roll, but what were the Yankees players that came to training camp and they swapped wide? I have forgot Fitz. One of them's name was, it actually ended up working out for one of the couples and not for the other couple. But I mean, how do you broach that conversation? Hey, honey, I'm going to training camp. Come with me and let's swap wives. And our swap course inspired us. the reality show Wife Swap. Probably not. But yeah, that was, a, that was the early 70s. I've forgotten their names. So let's stay early 70s. Why don't we just refer to the early 70s as the wife swapping era? Or just swapping. So let's stay with drugs and craziness. And when you talk about drugs and craziness, of course, Keith Richards comes to mind. Keith Richards, who is alive by no medical person can understand why this guy is alive. You can't tell by looking at him. Oh, man. So he and Mick, who wrote most of the songs, wrote a song called Angie which was a huge hit in the U.S. and a departure from the way the Stones, a lot of their normal songs. This was like a love ballad. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts and opinions of where Angie comes from. And not one has risen to the top over the others, but these are them. One is that Angie is a slang for heroin and Keith Richards was strung out on heroin. It was about his desire and attempts to kick the habit. Two, was it about Angie Dickinson, who at the time was the hot sex symbol in, in film and TV, and though she was married to Burt Bacharach at the time, she had had many affairs with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, so maybe she had an affair with one of the guys. It could have been Keith Richards' daughter, whose name was Dandelion Angela Richards. Could be, and I, I think this is it, Angie Bowie, who is the wife of David Bowie. And the story goes like this, John. David Bowie, who was in his Ziggy Stardust days, was a known sampler and um, bisexual. And Angie Bowie came home one night and found David Bowie in bed with Mick Jagger. And she said, I'm not going to let this out. I'm not going to, because she tolerated it. I'm not going to tell it unless, as long as you write me a song, Mick. So Mick wrote her song, Angie. The other person I heard was named after was Angela Merkel, who was 11 years younger than the guys at the time. And she was a a med student at Leipzig, Germany. And maybe somehow they were touring in Germany and they saw Angela Merkel and wrote Angie. (laughs) That's her walking out music now. Let's go back to Angie Bowie for a minute. Yeah. That would be the most colorful explanation of the different explanations with the possible exception of Angela Merkel. You catch your husband in bed with another guy and you have your wits enough about you to make a demand on the spot that she would like a song. Now, Mick Jagger, by the way, has denied that he was in bed with David Bowie and rejects that story. But here's the weird part. Keith Richards, as you pointed out, really wrote that song, not Mick Jagger. But here's the other thing. Family Guy had a great episode and they cut to live action sometimes and they claimed the gayest video ever was Mick Jagger and David Bowie doing Dancing in the Streets. And if you've seen that, you would very easily realize that the two of them could have been in bed together. I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I'm sure Family Guy wrote that scene because of this rumor, because they're on top of things. So you mentioned the wife swap a few minutes ago. Yes, I did. On March 4th, 1973, Yankee pitchers Mike Kikich and Fritz Peterson held separate news conferences 
during spring training and announcing they had traded wives, but it gets better or worse from there. They also traded kids and they also traded dogs. So, <laughs> oh boy. And what about like casserole recipes? Did they trade those too? There's no reference of that in this particular news coverage. But for Peterson, the swap actually worked out and he's still married to his former teammate's wife. And there's some talk that it might be made into a movie. What are we talking about here, Kurt? We're talking about songs with women's names in them and their backstory, John. All right. So on a very recent episode, Kurt, you and I agreed on our deserted island to bring one album with us. And we agreed on Springsteen Born to Run. Yes. So I got a Springsteen song for us. Rosalita. Love that song. He used to close all of his big arena shows. It was like the last song before he would do the encore. He actually considers it the best love song he ever wrote. But who is Rosalita? The song is actually largely biographical. At that point, he was very early in his career. He had just signed his first record deal, got like a $25,000 advance. And it was sort of a big F you to all the people that had doubted him, including his father. He had a girlfriend who he was living with at the time. I guess she was his muse at that point in his career. And her name was Diane Lozito. That's not Rosalita. I know. But work with me, Kurt, here. She was actually the woman that he was referring to when he wrote about their first kiss in Spirit in the Night. And she, in the song Sandy, was Crazy Janie. She wanted to know why he would never use her name Diane in any of his songs and always changed her name. And the answer he gave her, according to her, was, doesn't rhyme with that many things. So leaving aside that John Cougar Mellencamp figured it out with Jack and Diane, that was his explanation. When he wrote Rosalita, he needed a name. And Diane Lozita's grandmother, her name was Rose, Rose Lozita. And you can pretty much get where the idea comes from there. So Rosalita, come out tonight. So it was his girlfriend's grandmother's name sort of mushed together and sanded off some of the rough edges, but not Diane. There are no Dianes in his songs. So not sorted, but sweet. Does she it ever confuse you, by the way, when you go to a crepe stand and they say, do you want savory or sweet? Do you have to second guess yourself and say, what's savory again? Because savory kind of sounds sweet, but it's not sweet. It's well, it's not. a very good point you make, even though it's a weird one. One, I can't remember the last time I visited a crepe stand. Yeah. Two, while I agree that I would be confused by what exactly savory meant, I do know what sweet means. So I would just assume that savory was not sweet. or But it's not sour. That's the opposite of sweet the way I see it. But it does indicate that it's in a whole different camp than sweets. I like the savory. I like, you know... What exactly is savory? What's your definition of savory? Tasting that's not not sweet. We should do an episode, Kurt, on words that are hard to define exactly. All right. So I'm going to... Before we move on, when was the last time you went to a crepe stand? Uh, Last Wednesday, Tuesday for lunch. Where was said crepe stand? It was on 2nd Avenue in New York City. Wow, there are crepe stands on 2nd Avenue in New York City. And I got goat cheese, mushrooms, and I forgot what else in there. And it was fantastic. But here's what I'm going to tell you the backstory on. And what's very interesting about this is I'm going to do a forfer. We've talked about this in our very first episode, The Day the Music Died. February 3rd, 1959. Buddy Holly, the big bopper, and... uh, Richie Valance. Richie Valance, or tell me. 
and Richie Valens. And the whole thing was Waylon Jennings, who was a guitar player in the band. The story goes, he flipped a coin and he lost to Richie Valens. Richie Valens went on. The big bopper was not supposed to go, but he had a flu, so he went. It's kind of like in Titanic when Leonardo DiCaprio wins his ticket at a poker game right before the ship's about to leave. That's a poker game he probably would have been better off losing. But then again, he did meet Kate Winslet, and that seemed kind of like a big deal. And I've never seen that movie. So anyway. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. You've never seen Titanic. No. Is this like a religious position you've taken? No, but I know the way it ends. And it was long. It was kind of schmaltzy. Remember, we've covered schmaltzy chicken fat. Did you see when Daniel Day-Lewis played Lincoln? Yes. You knew how that turned out. (laughs) Touche, my friend, but I was interested in it. So anyway, back to my story. I don't like chicken fat, but I don't mind schmaltz. There were actually four touring acts. Buddy Holly. Richie Valens, Big Bopper, and Dion, Dion the Belmonts. But Dion could not afford the $36 for the plane, which is like $360 in today's money. So he said, I'm going to take the bus. So unfortunately, the plane crashed. But all four of these people have songs with women's names in it. All four have women's names that are big songs. So you have Richie Valens. His first big hit after La Bamba was O'Donna, who was his high school girlfriend whose parents were upset that she was dating a Latino and she would jump out of the window in San Fernando Valley in the 1950s, 58, and go to like Big Bob's or other places to meet him. So he had O'Donna. Then you had, of course, Peggy Sue, which is Buddy Holly. Now, Peggy Sue is a real woman. Peggy Sue was in his high school, in Lubbock High School. She was, turns out she was dating his drummer in his band. And the drummer said, the original song was supposed to be called Cindy Lou. And the drummer said, look, I want to impress this Peggy Sue. And so they changed the name to Peggy Sue. So that's two. Then we have the Big Bopper. Now, the Big Bopper's most famous song is also about a woman called Chantilly Lace. Chantilly Lace had a pretty face and a ponytail hanging down, a wiggle and a walk and a giggle and her talk makes her... Okay, I don't know where it came from. And then Dion had runaround Sue. Oh, yes. About someone in the neighborhood who was running around with a lot of guys. Coincidentally, Dion's wife's name is Sue. So he said, it's not really about my wife. It was about this other woman. And he actually said it was about this other woman who was loose in the neighborhood. But she called into a show one day when he was being interviewed. She married a rabbi and had like six kids and was very happy. So there you go. All right, Kurt. You mentioned bad movies. I'm going to reference another movie that was not well received, but has a great story about it nonetheless. So I'm a big fan of the Goo Goo Dolls. And their biggest hit is a beautiful ballad named Iris. And you should listen to it if you don't know it well. Johnny Resnick, who's a big part of the Goo Goo Dolls, is having a rough go of it, living in a hotel room in Los Angeles because his marriage had broken up. And on this particular day, he is asked to attend an advanced screening of a movie called City of Angels. It stars Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan. And Nicolas Cage is an angel. Yeah, I saw it. It was horrendous. He's been placed on Earth to help people transition to the afterlife, but he falls in love with Meg Ryan. And he ultimately has to surrender his immortality to be with her, which is a beautiful... Okay, regardless of that, it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Heaven Can Wait was a better movie. That was with Warren Warren Beatty. Beatty. That was a remake, though. Did you see the original? No. 
I did like that movie, Warren Beatty. He was a, he was a quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams in the movie, right? Correctamundo. We can talk about Paper Lion, too, with George Papard, or George Plimpton, rather. Who wrote it, yes. Anyway, that's a whole different story. Anyway, Resnick didn't get a big kick out of the movie. He really wanted to write a song for the soundtrack because U2 was going to have a song, and Peter Gabriel was going to have a song, and he thought it would be really cool to have a song on the same piece of plastic, the same album as those guys. For sure. So the song was written from Cage's character's point of view. And there's some beautiful lyrics. And I'd give up forever to touch you because I know that you'd feel me somehow. You're the closest to heaven that I'll ever be. And I don't want to go home right now. It is the number one song the Goo Goo Dolls have ever made. But Resnick is said he's terrible at naming songs. It's the last thing he does when he writes a song. So he writes this song. It flows out of him that day. It's just one of those, you know, beautiful, you know, everything sort of clicks kind of thing. He's looking through a magazine called LA Weekly, and he saw that a great singer-songwriter named Iris Dement was playing in town. He was like, wow, what a beautiful name. And he names the song Iris. I thought it was because he was walking by the flowers in a hotel, and they happened to be Iris's. Well, it could be that, but that's that. we're going to save that for an episode where we're talking about flowers that are in the names of songs. Well, I'm going to talk to you about a song. This happens to be my go-to karaoke song. It also happens to be the go-to song from every Boston Red Sox fan ever. Oh, yeah, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Sweet Caroline. Who the heck was Sweet Caroline? Well, Senate, let me ask you a question. What percentage of people, Kurt, do you think have a quote-unquote go-to karaoke song? Uh, 43. And what's the overlap between people who have a go-to karaoke song and those people who have visited a crepe stand recently? You are the only person who meets both of those criteria. <laughs> uh, I guess I am. I, you know, Drift Away is my other go-to, but it's harder for me to sing. Sweet Caroline, you can sort of cheat because you get the crowd into it and they sing with you. So, All right, so tell us the backstory on Sweet Caroline. Kurt. Well, people have always said, and Neil went along with this, but I'm not sure it's totally true, that it was after Caroline Kennedy. That's a little pervy because she was like 11 or 12 when the song was made. And if you know the lyrics in the song, it's a little pervy. But to be fair, the song was inspired by a photo of Caroline Kennedy, but he claimed he wrote it about his wife. Correct. Marsha. Okay. I see we went with Caroline then. Yeah. And he wanted Marsha. Unless he was doing a Brady Bunch song. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. But he wanted a name that had three syllables. So that's the way it worked. Do you know the song Rosanna by Toto, Kurt? I hate Toto. If I hear Africa one more time, I'm going to throw up. So you hate Toto. So I'm going to tell you a Toto story, Kurt. So Rosanna, which I do like the song Rosanna. I'm going to read some lyrics. All I want to do when I wake up in the morning is see your eyes. Rosanna, Rosanna. Back in the early days of Toto, Rosanna Arquette was dating the keyboard player. And she would hang around the band quite a bit. She'd kind of stop by, bring them beer. And she wasn't yet famous because it was still a few years before Desperately Seeking Susan came out. And they wrote this song, Toto, became a huge hit. The guy who wrote it said he wrote it about an amalgam of women that he had known. And he chose the name Rosanna because he just liked how it sounded. But when it became a big hit, Rosanna Arquette, went public with the idea that it was written about her. Now, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Perhaps she was just 
you know, seeking publicity for herself because she was an aspiring actress. So she claimed it was written about her. The guy who wrote it in the band claimed it was written about a bunch of people. And this has been a war of words for decades now between the band and Rosanna Arquette about whether it was written for her or not. And she said some fairly unpleasant things about the song over the years. So why would she want to be named after her then? Well, I think she originally didn't say unpleasant things, but as the dispute got uglier and Venom became part of the conversation, she went there. So Rosanna reminds me of Roxanne. Can you tell me where that came from? Because I do not know. By the police? I do know where it came from. So Sting wrote the song Roxanne, and it's about a man who basically falls in love with a prostitute. So Sting got the title from a poster of Cyrano's unrequited desire in Rostard's tale while sitting in a bar in Paris staring at the poster. He sees this poster, he writes this song, and of course, it becomes a gigantic hit for the police. I didn't realize that that's where Roxanne comes from, from the Cyrano de Bergerac story. And remember, that's what Steve Martin did a movie about called Roxanne. And, ah, uh, ah, ah, good one, Kurt. I just put that together. Cyrano de Bergerac, right? It's, it's a modern telling of that story, and it's called Roxanne. Now I know why. Okay, it's so it connects to the origin of Roxanne, the song, The Police, Sting, all the way to Steve Martin in the movie. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, Kurt, have we reached that unfortunate moment in our podcast where we must start to wind things up and start to sing? How about Annie's song? Did you think yeah. you know John Denver, Annie's song? I think it was about his wife. So I just... It was, about, it was written for his wife. You fill up my senses like a night in the forest. That marriage ended very badly. There's even a story that when they unfortunately went to split all of their belongings, that in a fit of rage because the divorce was not peaceful, he took a chainsaw and cut the bed in half. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I really enjoyed this category, this topic. And I hope that you out there, our listeners, will give us your thoughts. Please give us suggestions. We'll dig into it. Maybe we'll even bring them up on the next podcast or give us the backstory yourselves. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Smart Dribble pretty much anywhere. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of Smart Dribble. This is John Ellenthal saying goodbye for the week and... Kurt Schneider. Ciao, everyone. <laughs>